Hello and welcome to a Thursday episode of the State of the Nova Nation. I'm Eugene Rapay. He's Chris Danziel. I hope everyone had a pretty nice Valentine's Day or Ash Wednesday. Obviously, as we're going to talk about later, it could have been a little better. But we also had some nice victories in the Villanova Athletics front, especially when it comes to recruiting. As was announced yesterday, way ahead of schedule, Javon Quinterly has opted to commit to Villanova, putting an end to a whirlwind roller coaster ride of recruitment. When it comes to Quinterly, as we know, Villanova had been in the mix for about three years, initially offering him way back in the spring of 2015. They'd stayed close to him. It was a a very talented point guard coming out of Hudson Catholic down there in New Jersey. Quinterly, Villanova were tight. Villanova had been considered a very strong lean for a while. And then just last summer, he takes a trip to Tucson, Arizona. And all of a sudden, Sean Miller and the Wildcats over there start appearing in the forefront. And then last August, he committed to Arizona. But then the crazy FBI investigation unfolded. He was one of the players that was strongly assumed to have been involved, according to the investigation documents involving him and Arizona assistant coach Emmanuel Richardson. Quinterly, in response, decommitted to Arizona last October, opened up his commitment, stayed pretty quiet, was really low-key throughout the high school season, and just kind of let it unfold, didn't really open too much about his recruitment process. There were some rumors going back and forth that some other teams started appearing in the picture, most notably Oklahoma. But of course, Villanova was still there, still all throughout, still present, still going to his games, still remaining in contact with Quinterly as the FBI stuff kind of fell out and all the, basically the Pandora's box of college basketball opened. But as of yesterday, Quinterly did announce his choice to go to Villanova. I'm assuming that means Jay Wright did his homework and that they feel comfortable enough to take and honor his commitment to come to Villanova. As we talked about in October about the Quinterly question, I have been a very big supporter of the Javon Quinterly bandwagon. I had been on it once I saw him back last April at the UAA in Brooklyn, and I thought, man, this guy's an awesome point guard. Really reminds me of Jalen Brunson. Once I looked him up and saw his profile and I saw Villanova was in the mix, I was like, hey, this can totally work out. I can totally see this happening. Lots of craziness surrounding his journey to get to the main line. He's not officially there yet, but to get his verbal, this is a big, big, big land for Villanova. Assuming he's all good to go and he'll be eligible next season because he's definitely going to contribute right away. Yeah, you definitely just nailed all the bases there. I'm I'm really myself, I'm really happy he's coming, obviously. Top end recruit, five star recruit. It basically a Jalen Brunson replacement. I remember back in October, I had made a Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers type transition. Don't know if it would be that good, but if it's anything like that, Villanova fans like us can be really happy and the program, it should be really hyped on this because now next year it looks just a little bit more promising in case Jalen and Bridges do leave, which I do believe is the case right now. Yeah, Quinterly is a top 25 recruit according to 24-7 Sports. He's a five-star prospect. And he really tops off this loaded recruiting class that we're seeing for the class of 2018. That includes him, Brandon Slater, and Cole Swider. Three very highly touted guys, all top 100, who actually, with Quinterly's commitment, it's actually the highest rated recruiting class that Jay Wright has brought into Villanova since 2009. To refresh people's memory, that include Muftal Yaru, Isaiah Armwood, Dominic Cheek, and Malik Waynes, and if there's anything, at least I'm hoping for, and I hope everyone too, that this trio coming in has a much better, longer-lasting legacy than that 2009 class. Yeah, that's for sure. I, when Quinterly did commit, I was I immediately thought of that. I was like, wow, this is like a really good recruiting class, rankings-wise anyway. Obviously, we've had pretty good classes over the past few years, but the, the only concerning thing is that you, you revert back to that 09 class and you're like, oh no, I hope this this doesn't get to them. This doesn't get to their head. And they're like, oh, okay, top end uh, class. And then it just all falls apart. But I, I just have a feeling that it'll be different this time around. I think Jay knows how to handle it a little bit better. I know in long shots, Dana O'Neill talked about it. When Jay got that high end recruiting class, he really didn't know how to go about it. 
So, yeah, hopefully this time around is different. About Quarterly himself, he comes in at six feet tall, stands in at 170. Not a very big guy, especially at the guard position. But for what he doesn't have in size, he certainly makes up for it in his quickness and the way that he can get to the basket. He's very shifty and very crafty, very smooth, just like good old JB crossover basketball. He can score from almost anywhere. He can knock down threes. He can drive inside. He's part of Jelly Fam. For those of you who don't know, it's that hip new movement that these kids are coming out with nowadays. I personally don't get it because to me, it just looks like a layup. Maybe I'm starting to get too old to understand what the kids in high school are doing. But I do understand that Quinterly is a very talented guy. He sees the floor very well, has excellent handles, great court vision. He's going to be a great facilitator. And when it comes to himself, he can also get his own buckets and call his own number as well. It's funny you bring up that jelly thing. The first thing my brother did when he came home from school was play a game of basketball against me. He started doing this thing called jelly, and he started yelling. And I was like, what the heck are you talking about? What the heck is this? And I was like, is this is this a generational gap? I'm only five years older than him. And I'm like, wait, is, is am I getting am I too old now to understand kids hip lingo in college now? But yeah, now now that I figured out what it is, and I hope to see a lot of jelly moves over the next four years from Quinterly. I remember I think it was a couple of years back, I saw this video that was trending on Bleacher Report and all over social media about this jelly fan movement. And I checked out the video and I was like, I don't get it. It's just a bunch of, it's just a bunch of high school kids who just play street ball and can, I guess, quote unquote, make fancy layups. <laughs> it just looked like a normal layup. I yeah. hit up a few of my other basketball friends to ask them if they knew about this, if they had heard about this. And they were perplexed. They were like, I don't get it. Like, you know, you see N1 mixtapes where guys are dunking all over the place, doing all these cool acrobatic moves. And then all of a sudden you see the Jelly Fam movement where they just come in with a layup and, I don't know, put like one hand behind their head as they're doing like a finger roll. Like, I don't get it. But it's funny that you say your younger brother brings it up when you play basketball because now when I'm playing pickup ball or I'm at the park, all these people are like, oh, jelly, jelly. And I'm like, what does that mean? What is that? Yeah, it, it's some movement. I just, I guess we're just too old to understand right now, which is really weird to say. It's definitely weird. I'm not even 25. I'm not even a quarter of the way there to a century yet. And I'm not even that old. I'm not even that old. And I don't even know what that is. But I remember at the Jordan Classic last year with Isaiah Washington, who's now a guard at Minnesota, he's quote unquote the Jelly Fam creator, the Jelly Fam godfather. And I remember when he was at the Jordan Classic, there was like a whole section in the corner. Whenever he had the ball, it was like, Jelly, Jelly. And it was like all these like little kids screaming Jelly. And you can hear them very well. And I was like, I don't know what that means and then i realized oh jelly fam i guess it's taken off i guess it's gone beyond that bleacher report video that i saw two years ago yeah the movement's kind of caught on of a, a mind of its own really i'm honestly surprised that it's come to villanova i think if you haven't checked it out there's a video starring javon quinterly on how to join the jelly fam i think there's gonna be a lot of fun jelly jokes or jelly puns jelly signs i saw Catherine ryan shout outs to our fellow vu hoopsner <laughs> She said PB&J, Phil Booth and Javon Quinterly. So hopefully he stays so that the PB&J thing works. Oh, that's clever. I like that. Wow. Okay, that's good. If you want other clever Villanova-isms, please follow her on Twitter at CMRyan624. You can't get enough over there. There's just way more stuff going on over there and a lot of good ones. So if you're a Villanova fan, highly, highly recommend. So going back to Quinterly. As he's put all over social media and has had these great producers, great Photoshop artists, they Photoshopped him on, and he wears number five in high school. If I remember correctly, that's also his AAU number with SportsU over there in Jersey. But Phil Booth also wears number five. If you're Phil Booth, do you think you'll give the number away? Do you think you'll change the number? Or do you, what, what number do you think he'll take? Do you think he takes Brunson's number one? If he goes, what, what do you see him doing? Or even better, does he combine the one and the five and, and stands in uncharted waters by being the first to pull out the Ryan Archie Diakono 15? Ooh, good question. I was thinking one just because of all the great point guards that Villanova's had as always, in recent years has been number one. You had Lowry was one, Scotty Reynolds was one, Jalen's one, now hopefully Quinterly's one. Arch seems to be the, uh, the, the outlier there. So I, I'm going to say number one. 
it would be perfectly fitting as his game certainly reminds me of Jalen. And I'm sure a lot of Nova Nationers will be very happy to see Javon Quinterly suit up in the blue and white. Things can make a lot of people happy as I've been taking the gaze at the comment section and it's been nothing but positive vibes for Quinterly. It seems like a lot of people who are just kind of bummed about his decision to go to Arizona and the whole FBI thing. It seems like they've certainly warmed up. And I think when Jay Wright's giving him the green light or that, you know, that clean bill of health, so to say, I think a lot of people will start to hop on that bandwagon too. But he is certainly a fantastic point guard. And if you aren't convinced yet, just wait until the fall. And if he's ready and if he's able to play, he's going to prove you wrong and he's going to turn you to a fan. The man is dynamic. He is just lights out. He's so great. And when he's bringing in Biggie's championships or bringing in those W's, I'm sure a lot of the ugly stuff in the past will certainly go into the corner and into the closet and never be heard of ever again, honestly. Yep. As long as you win, that's all that matters. Yeah. Winning is certainly the deodorant that masks so many problems, but unfortunately we had a few problems exposed last night on Valentine's Day. Getting a heartbreaking loss to the Providence Friars over there at the dunk where, as Doug Gottlieb says, where quote-unquote ranked teams go to die. Well, Villanova finally, finally succumbed to that after a few years of not losing at the dunk. Doing actually pretty well for themselves. Although in the past, historically, it has been a very tough place to play. And we were reminded of that last night. And actually went down to the wire. Providence won 76 to 71, dropping Villanova to 23 and 3, handing them their third Big East loss of the season and their second within a week. Yeah, it was actually a week apart from each other when we lost to St. John's. If there's one thing that really stuck out to me this whole game, point fingers at a bunch of different things, but for me, it was the turnovers. 19 turnovers, and that turned into 21 Providence points. That is just too much, and Villanova is a team that usually takes great care of the ball, but they did not last night, and it showed, and it showed in the way how Providence just took advantage of that rare opportunity in which Villanova does not turn the ball over much. I mean, for Christ's sake, they were top five in the NCAA in terms of the lowest turnover rate in all of college basketball, and when you have 19 turnovers and seven of those are coming from your main man, leading man, Jalen Brunson, it's just not looking like a good day. And Villanova was playing catch up the whole time and they just could not reach the Providence Friars falling down once again, 76 to 71. Chris, it was heartbreaking and it was not a good way to end Valentine's Day after the great news that we had received earlier in the morning. But what stuck out to you? Where did we go wrong? You take one look at the box score, like you said, you see the large number in the turnover column. You're like, what the heck has happened to this offense? You had it against St. John's where they just look completely inept. Now, this this game, they turn it over a large margin. And on top of that, you only hit three of 20 from three. Well, like, what were you doing? Like, it, it felt that a lot of the shots they were taking too, they weren't open. Like the St. John's game, I felt like they just weren't hitting. This game, it felt like a lot of the shots were contested and they were a lot of stupid shots. Dante, again, big culprit, stupid shot taking. Heck, even Bridges was a big time offender in that department. I wasn't a big fan of it. And I, I think that's where they went wrong. One of the many areas that they went wrong. And honestly, I hate to say it, but they look cooked. They look tired. They look disinterested. And, you know, you can knock me and say that, oh, well, this team's always ready to play and whatever. I'm sorry. But last night, they did not look ready to play. They did not look fresh. They did not look interested. As certain players, I can say, yes, they tried, but others, they just looked like they were going through the motions, and that was it. Now, in terms of Bridges taking bad shots, I, are you talking about just from beyond the arc? Because I thought he had a pretty good game, at least in terms of offense. He led us with 19 points, shot 6 of 10. All of his misses were from deep. But other than that, were you specifically looking at his three-point yeah. performance? Yes, three-point shooting because I feel that obviously this is this is that's the department this team excels in, and that's what propels this team to be the number one offense in the country. They can do their work inside with the best of them. There's no doubt about that. But when three-point shots aren't falling, it's obvious this team isn't going to do well. And if you're going to lose to St. John's not shooting well, not shooting threes well, you're certainly not going to beat Providence at on the road shooting just as bad, if not. I think it was worse actually, uh, percentage-wise. 
Yeah, as we talked about last episode, Providence is actually one of the best in the country. Top 15, according to Ken Palm, when it comes to defending the three-point line. And that was in full display last night. And just the way that they just restricted Villanova. No threes in the first half. First three didn't come until, what, like the 11 to 12-minute mark in the second half. It just was not a pretty time from long range but i to the cats credit i will give them props for readjusting as 44 of their 71 points came from inside the paint you definitely need to make that adjustment because the threes just were not falling but just defensively too i felt like a lot of guys were missed you're like yeah you can blame the turnovers but if you look at providence even though as a team they did not shoot well overall 37 percent, i think a large part of that came in the way that villanova locked down in the final four minutes because during that final four and a half minute stretch of the game in the second half, the Friars did not make a single basket. In fact, they only made one of their final 12 shot takes of the game. But that is a far cry with how they started the second half, going 11 for 12 at one point. And it just seemed like they could not miss. And Villanova just did not look like it was on top of everything. It was tough. But when this team doesn't make its threes, they look a little handcuffed and they look very disoriented. Unfortunately, they just couldn't pull enough stops to get out of there. And now five-point loss, three Big East losses now. Did we just lose the Big East regular season title? Is it Xavier's? Do you see us catching them? I mean, I thought we lost it against St. John's, but now I, mean, I, I don't think – I didn't think they were going to beat Xavier with a fully healthy team. Now with a terrible-looking team right now with dealing with heavy amount of injuries, I think this is Xavier's title lose now. They got a – Two ga- game and a half lead right now with Villanova coming in on Saturday. They win that. It's all but theirs. But good for them. It's good to see a little bit of parity. Obviously, it's not good as a Villanova fan, but as for the conference, I guess it's okay. But I think this race is over if Villanova loses Saturday for sure. Yeah, it'll certainly be weird to see another team win the regular season title as Villanova's just dominated it since conference realignment. I think, in a way, Villanova, yeah, as you said, if Villanova wants to stay alive in this chase, They definitely have to take care of business on Saturday. A loss would pretty much probably all but seal it and hand the title over to the Musketeers. We're going to get into the Xavier game just a little bit and how I feel about that. But if there is one bright side, if we finish in second in the Big East, at least we won't have that 12 o'clock matinee. People can actually watch us in primetime as the second seed going against the winner of the 7-10 matchup at night. So no days off needed. Yeah, but then if they win that game, the next game's like real late, isn't it? Isn't the semifinal game like the late one? I don't want that. No, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's like nine o'clock. That's, that's the, that just that's sounds brutal, especially on a. It would be the Friday, right? Yeah, it would be Friday. So yeah, no, I wouldn't want that. Villanova had its spurts where it just absolutely locked down Providence, especially at the end of the game in those final four and a half minutes. But there were also times where they looked lost overall. What did you think of the defensive effort? We just throwing out percentages out there. Providence did shoot 37% on the floor. They did shoot 32% from beyond the arc. Not exactly impressive, but what would you grade the Villanova defense from A through F? They forced 14 turnovers. They lost the rebounding battle by two. In your opinion, how did you see it? I'd give them like a C minus, D plus. There were just some possessions where they just looked so disoriented. It, it looked like half of the team was playing zone and half of the team was playing man. It made no sense. In the Slack chat, it was brought up that Dante was looking terrible on his off-ball D. In all honesty, I feel that he's been horrible on off-ball D all year. He's been running around like a chicken without the head, and then to make up for his mistakes, he usually has to foul, and sometimes it leads to an add one. I didn't like that. And also, Amari Spellman, he got caught a bunch of times this game, leaving his feet on pump fakes, which in reality, these guys really weren't shooting that well. Like I let them have the shot from mid-range, and if they make it or right, you tip your cap, but it, I felt like, why, why allow him to drive? And as a result, Bridges usually had to cover for Omari's mistakes, and then he ended up fouling out because, I mean, you didn't have him late in the game. I was just very, very disappointed in the way, in some of the individual efforts. And I thought the zone it, as a whole, it just looked really odd and bad. And I, I think I understand why Jay really wants to stick with man. Interesting you say that DiVincenzo's off-ball D has been bad the whole year. We did see it in the Butler game. That is a game that I definitely think of right off the bat in terms of a bad defense in that we saw how he would leave the man open in the corner to give some help defense. And then we would just get shredded in, with a corner three as a result. But do you really think he's been that bad all year? 
I mean, we see him make some nice plays where he gets a All steal, right. but I guess would that be more on ball, picking the guy off and then just taking it the other end? Yeah, I mean, maybe not the whole year. I'm just exaggerating and upset that they lost, but it feels that his mistakes are more noticeable than most and i think that's why i'm highly critical of him with him you see the and ones happen more often you see the the player who he was supposed to be guarding hit the three more often it just his mistakes are very very clear and i I think as a result i think that's just why i feel that way i wouldn't say the whole year he's not a hard he's not a bad player but he he does have some really weak moments where it's like, dude, come on, like you're you're so much better than that, and you know you're better than that. But he doesn't play like he should be, and it's really disappointing to see because he should be improving at this point in the game. He shouldn't be regressing. Dante Divincenzo's stat line last night was six points, three of ten on the floor, zero for four from deep, five rebounds, and three turnovers. Overall, honestly, I. I don't know if there was anyone's performance that I truly enjoyed. I mean, outside of Bridges, no, I right. think it was great, but then he fouled out. But overall, I just never really felt blown away by a single Wildcat on the floor last night. No, no one really stuck out. And honestly, outside of maybe like the last two minutes of the game with Gillespie, like really no one showed me anything. Gillespie had that nice deep three and then the nice drive to the basket to get a quick five points at the end. But but other than that, like nothing really stuck out to me. One last look at the box score. Bridges had 19, Brunson with 14. Gillespie with 10 points and Spellman with 11. And then on the Providence side, they were led by Kyron Cartwright, who played a good amount of the game with four fouls, had 17 points. Then right behind him was Rodney Bullock and Alpha Diallo with 14 points each. Alpha Diallo had the dagger pair of free throws at the very end of the game with 12 seconds remaining to really put it out of reach. Just looking at this team as a whole, I'm sure you got a few text messages. I got a few text messages myself. Three Big East losses sounds like the greatest problem to 90% of the rest of the conference. But for Villanova, well, it's looking like now that Xavier's going to take it or you know, it's their race to lose, as you said. But just overall, how concerned are you with the Cats? And I'm talking going into March, going into the home stretch of the regular season. How do you view this team now? I have to say, I'm now I'm starting to get concerned. I think the defensive woes are showing up more often than what they sh- than what they have been because mainly because the offense hasn't been able to cover it up. And I feel that this it has an eerily similar vibe to the 09-2010 Villanova Wildcats when that team highly ranked throughout the year. They had an All-American point guard with Reynolds, kind of like Jalen. They had a great team. And then they just completely fell apart at the end of the season. And they were losing games at home to teams that they really shouldn't have been. Uh, and this equivalent would be St. John's. And then they would go on the road, and it seemed like every game they were losing. I mean, I don't want to see them go that direction, obviously, but it's got an eerily similar vibe. Yes, there's still this game this weekend against Xavier, and if they win that, then no harm, no foul, in my opinion. But going into that tough road environment against a really good Xavier team, it's just very, very concerning. That 0-9-10 team did end up getting a two seed, but they looked horrible in the tournament. In reality, they should have lost to Robert Morris before getting bounced by St. Mary's. And I could see the, the same fate happening to this team right now if they keep playing like this. The 0-9-10 team was certainly a case of the wheels not only falling off the bandwagon, but completely breaking off and just imploding right then and there. I'm really hoping that this is not the turn or the twist that this season's going to go in. But I'm not pushing the panic button just yet. As we've talked about before, the dunk is a very hard place to play. And no matter how good or bad Providence is, they're always going to give Villanova a hard time. We'll have to see before I'm pressing any kind of panic button or DEFCON 1. So until that happens, not yet. I wouldn't say this would be the game that brings me there yet. But it does hurt when this team loses and it does make them feel a little more vulnerable and a little less superhuman. But we do have a big game coming up this Saturday at 4.30 p.m. at the Cintas Center. It's still going to be a top-five matchup, regardless of this loss. It's not going to change the standings yet. But call me crazy. I've been saying it all week. I think we're going to smack Xavier. And with us losing, I really, really think we're going to smack Xavier. Care to elaborate your points? Because I I love to hear it. You you teased it last episode, and I I just got to know. Xavier is undefeated at the Cintas Center. It's probably the only place left in the Big East that has an undefeated home record. And it's, you know, it's pretty well deserved. The Cintas Center is not a fun place to play in. It's rocking all the time. 
And when Villanova's come to town, I'm sure that all these Cincinnati people are definitely going to pack that nice looking arena that they have there. However, yes, Xavier is 23 and 3. Very identical record to Nova. They've won a lot. But just looking at the quality of these wins, if St. John's is the team that's unlucky and has lost every close game that could have gone either way, the Musketeers have literally gotten every win for every close game that could have gone either way. And they've just gotten, I feel, blessed with luck. I don't know what their luck ranking is, according to Ken Palm. The fact that they have just continuously escaped game after game after game after game is just unreal. And I feel like they're due for one. Just looking at this team, they've won 10 games decided by seven or fewer points. And these games involved in these very close contests do not exactly blow me out of the water. They beat East Tennessee State. Then they barely beat Marshall. They need a comeback for both of those games. They barely beat Marquette, DePaul. They escaped Butler twice, escaped St. John's twice. In fact, the St. John's game was the Johnny's last loss before going off to this crazy streak that's very improbable. Shout out to 538 Sports for putting a feature on that. That's very interesting. They've escaped Creighton, as we saw last weekend. Very controversial ending there. And then they also escaped Georgetown. I don't know how they've gotten into these close rumbles with these teams. I don't know how they've managed to escape every single one. But I feel like they're due for one. And I feel like Villanova, being the team that has not lost back-to-back games since 2012-13 season, this is the time. And Villanova has done pretty well at the Centile Center outside of that one loss in the 2015-16 season. So I think the luck finally runs out for the Musketeers. And not to mention, yes, it was at home. But the way that Villanova bounced back to get that big win against Xavier after taking that loss before earlier, I think we're going to see something similar to that. And Trayvon Blewett and J.P. McCura, as talented as they are, there's no one really after them that blows my mind away. And I think if Villanova is able to limit them again to virtually not much like it did last time at the Wells Fargo Center, Granted, it's easier said than done, but if they do that again, I think that they have this one in the bag. Certainly make some good points there, but I just, I can't, I can't get behind a Villanova winning here. Something about Sintas, I don't like going in there. Yeah, I know you mentioned that the last time Villanova lost at Sintas was 15-16. That was also a matchup of two top five teams. Villanova was one, Xavier was five. This time around, Villanova will be three, Xavier four, another top five matchup. Xavier and Villanova are very close. Yes, I know Villanova beat them down at, at Wells Fargo, but I think that's just the, the trend when Villanova's home against Xavier. But another trend is when Villanova goes to Sintas, usually close games. Last year really wasn't. That was pretty much the outlier. I don't think that'll continue. I think Xavier takes this one after a big uh, win against Seton Hall last night. I will say, though, that Trayvon Blewett, as good as he is and as much of a game changer that he can be, he's been a little up and down over the last month or so. He'll have his big 31-point game against Georgetown like he did, which they certainly needed every point because Georgetown had that game in the bag before, for some reason, fouling him beyond the arc, giving him the four-point play needed to tie the game up in the closing seconds of the game. But then other nights he'll have his not-so-great 14-point game like he did against St. John's, going only 4-for-16 on the floor? Or how about his 6-point game against Creighton when he was 3-for-9? He is a little up and down. Yeah, he's definitely a guy I'd want on my team. He's definitely a great scorer. But I feel like he's just not that consistent. And when it comes to playing against Villanova, I feel like he hasn't been big against the Cats. Really, ever. Maybe that one time when they did finally upset Nova at Sintas. But I've never really felt like he's had such a big impact whenever he plays against the Cats. But do you think he'll have a down performance against Villanova with the way Villanova's defense has been playing and the way the team has looked and with the home court advantage? Yes, because as crazy as it is, he's never scored more than 12 points against the Cats ever in his life. Ever. Really? Wow. Okay. That I did not know. (laughs) I, I knew he's had some bad performances, but I didn't think it was everything below 12. I thought he would have at least had 20 in some games. Yeah, believe it or not, the most he's ever scored against Nova was when he was a freshman. And it was a 12-point game, and he only shot 4 for 11 on the floor, and Xavier did lose that one by 12. 
He has not been an impact player against the Cats. He'll beat up everyone else, but as soon as Villanova comes to town, uh, he's he's hiding out. He's hoping J.P. McCurrick can have a nice game. Well, now that we mentioned it, he's obviously going to drop like 25, go five of eight from deep, you know, maybe even chip in some t- ten, 10 assists and maybe maybe 10 rebounds too. Why not? He'll get a triple-double at this point, the way we're talking about it now. So congrats to Trayvon Blewett on his uh, triple-double in advance. Yeah, it'll be like that one time when we discovered that we had DePaul fans listening to us last year. And we're like, wow, other fan bases listen to us. And I'm sure J.P. McCure is out there looking like, oh, I wonder who's trolling me now. Let's see what these guys are saying at BU Hoops. And then he's expecting to hear trash about himself. But then he hears trash about Trayvon, gives him the heads up. He's like, oh, I'll show them 12 points. And surely enough, hopefully, I'm, I'm hoping I didn't jinx this. Now now you have me paranoid that I jinxed this. But no, you know you what? Did. I'm going to stick to my guns. I'm going to stick to my guns, and I say we win. And Trayvon Blewett will have another under-12 performance. <laughs> bold. Bold. I, I know I just said it, and you know what? There's, there's 3% of me that's shaking right now, but the man <laughs> has not historically played well against Nova. And if he is all they have – I want to say all they have, but if he's their leading man, J.P. McCarra better show up because I don't think Trayvon Blewett will. And as a result, if those two aren't cooking, then this is not a win for Xavier. I appreciate the optimism. I I, re- I really do. I wish I could be as optimistic as you, but I'm sticking with my preseason prediction. I don't think Villanova comes away victorious in this one. Xavier will just be too much at home. I will say there is something to watch for. It's how the somewhat thin Villanova Wildcats do against the depth of Xavier. Xavier has a lot of bodies that can throw at you and a lot of very nice contributors that really build around Blewett and Makira very well. But I just, I, I'm telling you, I just don't think it's going to happen. I, I will probably eat these words on Tuesday, but I just don't think that Villanova is going to drop back-to-back games for the first time since 2012-2013. Yeah. I mean, you got to think it's going to happen eventually. I mean, I don't want it to happen. I'm not advocating a loss, but, but yeah, you, you got to think it's going to If there was a time for it to happen, it's certainly this. I, unfortunately, I think that streak ends. We'll be keeping an eye on. We'll be watching for sure this Saturday at 4.30 p.m. The game is on Fox, I believe. Not FS1, not FS Business Network, not FS2, not FS Go. It is on the Fox, and it's going to be a top five matchup between two teams that, well, I wouldn't say they hate each other, but Xavier definitely hates us. In the meantime, though, we're going to take a look at the women's basketball team who resumes action this weekend, and they have also have some two really tough opponents coming up. The first being Marquette, the defending Big East tournament champions, on Friday at 12.30 p.m., and then going back up against DePaul this Sunday afternoon at 3. And the game that game will be on FS1, while the Marquette game will be on the Big East Digital Network. These are two teams that Villanova has already faced. We know that they're the top two in the conference. Right now, DePaul is at number one, and Marquette's number two. Marquette they beat Villanova by 10 last time, and as for DePaul, the Wildcats blew them out at home. Both games are at home, but now they'll be on the road. Chris, let's start with Marquette first. This is a team that a lot of people had great praise for going into the season, and with great reason, too. They were just, they're absolutely loaded. They're very talented. Alzai blocked in. Dav- Erica Davenport, just a few names that really come to mind right away as two dynamic players, and there's more than just them. But this Marquette squad, they beat up Villanova before, but since then they've looked a little vulnerable. How do you see this game playing out, and what do you want Villanova to do differently this time around? Yeah, Marquette has certainly looked vulnerable recently. They've dropped two of their past five games. One was at the Paul, so that's excusable. But the other was at home against Creighton. That's very shocking because Marquette is notoriously a really, really good home team. And to lose at home to Creighton, who I know they're fourth in the Big East right now, but that that's a team you should really take care of business. But I, I think in this game, you got to look out for Erica Davenport again. Last game, she absolutely ate Villanova up inside. She, she grabbed 12 boards and dropped 22 points on them. And I remember I mentioned in that and after we recapped the Marquette game that she absolutely dominated Villanova last year too. So Villanova's going to have to try and neutralize her somehow because Blockton's going to get hers. Marquette's just such a good team that it's going to be hard to contain one of them, but to contain both of them. But if you can try and neutralize one of them, 
I mean, more so Davenport, I think, okay. But again, since this game is on the road, Marquette's good at home. I It's going to be an awfully tough, tough proposition. I feel that if Villanova had beaten them at Villanova, I think they might have put the seed of doubt in to Marquette that, hey, you know what, they can come in here and beat us. But I think since Marquette took care of business on the road, they'll come away with the victory. Yeah, Marquette is definitely a very strong interior-oriented team. They can also shoot from the three, but it's the way that they're able to dominate inside that scares me a little bit, especially against Villanova. That's just such a perimeter-oriented team. Lives and dies by the three-point line literally on both ends of the court. But when it comes to playing against such an interior team like Marquette that has the talent to bang around inside and really hurt you in the paint, you've got to be a little concerned. And we've seen great, talented forwards give Villanova problems before. And this is a Marquette team that has had, that has had Villanova's number recently. Pretty hard game coming up, especially to do it on the road. Yeah, Villanova's had this nice win streak going. And it was a competitive game against Marquette. It wasn't like that they just got ran off the court at Jake Nevin. But I don't know if they'll have the tools to just upset them at home. But as for this DePaul game, this is a team that they actually blew out. Adriana Hahn hit her 1,000th career point. Definitely didn't see the 84-58 to 58 result coming. Do you think, maybe not a blowout win, but do you think Villanova can pull off the win? And if so, what do you feel like they need to do against DePaul in order to replicate that? Similar to Villanova, DePaul's on their own win streak. They've won their past five games. They do have a game against Georgetown this weekend before the Villanova one, so that is TBD, but they are playing some good basketball right now. So for Villanova to win this game, they're going to have to shoot really well from deep. I mean, it, that's pretty obvious with the way their offense is set up, and that, I, you can say that about every game, but more importantly against DePaul because last game they went 10 of 21 from deep, and that basically spearheaded their, the entire game because they got hot early and were able to outscore DePaul 19-5 in the first quarter and never looked back. Because of that big lead, they were able to clamp down on defense and focus on the offense, and they did a pretty damn good job since they won 84-58. to They blew out the top team in the Big East. Sanford was at home, so you have a little bit of advantage there, but still, that is a pretty incredible feat. And if they can shoot similar from beyond the arc, I think they have a pretty good shot. I think they match up well against the ball. They they did do a good defensive job on them last game, so why not? Honestly, I, I feel pretty good about this game for them. I think they actually will come away with a victory. Last time when Villanova did beat DePaul, it did shoot a crazy, insane 71% from the field in the first half alone. Definitely going to need something close to that, maybe not as crazy as that, but they'll definitely need something similar to that in order to pull off another upset on the road. It's interesting you think they split the games. I think they split it. I don't know exactly in what order. I can't say. I, If I were to bet, I guess you're right in thinking that it would happen against DePaul. Marquette just presents too much of a challenge inside for them to conquer it. But hey, if they, it's the other way around, that's good too, because at least you have a win against two of the top teams of the conference to your resume. Don't think that they'd win both. It's very possible that they lose both. But honestly, I think that they're going to split the series. They're playing very well right now. They're really cooking. And they've gotten over those the early slump, I'd say, or more of like a rut, where they just weren't playing too well. Like they were winning games to start off conference play. They were three and three, but obviously not up to the standard that they'd been playing earlier in the season. And it seems like they've corrected themselves recently, got back into a groove, got back into a rhythm, and now they're starting to play really good basketball again. Maybe it was a case of just tiring out or not being able to live up to the pressure of being ranked again, week in and week out. But whatever the cause may be, Volnova is playing very well again. And it's good to see them do that. They're going to get two tough tests before they go into the final week of the regular season. We'll be certainly keeping an eye out for that this weekend. Once again, the the Paul game will be on Sunday afternoon at 3 p.m. on FS1. And then the Marquette game will be on the Big East Digital Network or Fox Sports Go this Friday at 12.30 p.m. So bored on your lunch break, got nothing to do. Just hop on and stream it and check out how the cats are doing. It's going to be certainly going to be a good one, and it's going to be good basketball. Two very good opponents this weekend, so keep an eye out for that. Yep, especially with the Big East tournament right around the corner. This is a good test for Villanova to see where they stack up against the elites of this conference. 
It's that time of the day where we dive into the mailbag, look at some of the questions. We're going to take a step back and answer some of the questions that we missed last time. We have a few questions here, and one that I actually want to pitch to you that I had in mind a week ago. I had that laryngitis, so I couldn't talk, and then we had that really stuffed episode, so I never really felt like we were able to squeeze it in. But now I feel like we can talk about it, so I'm going to ask you that question at the very end. But first, in response to our Lenten discussion, I don't know about you, Chris, but my first meal on, on Ash Wednesday yesterday was... After I had breakfast, of course, but lunch, I had an eggplant vegetable pizza and had eggplant, broccoli, and tomato. Shout out to Mike Jacobs because I know he hates eggplant. And then at dinner time, I actually had sushi. It was a good time. I went out for dinner and it was a good time. Had some sushi. So you picked two of the Mount Rushmore items. Wow. Pretty good on your part. I ended up having linguine with clam sauce for dinner. And for lunch, I had peanut butter and jelly. So I had a food item that we never even talked about, and the other one was tacked on at the end just for fun. So Peter, Kai, if we're going Greek or Chi, I'm not 100% sure, but he asked, my family's go-to Lent foods growing up were fish sticks and McFish fillets. Is there no love for either of those? Yeah, I, I never had fish sticks before, and I never had a, what was it, the McDonald's fish fillet? Yeah, no, I, I never had that either. I know, I know McDonald's came up with the fish fillet specifically for Lent. That I know, but... I have yeah. had fish sticks before. I don't know what brand. I haven't had them in a really long time, but they are pretty good. As for the McFish fillets, never had one in my life. Don't know if I ever will. But it did remind me of when we were down in Louisville for the Elite Eight 2016 a couple years ago. And for some reason, out of all the things that there was a fast food abundance of, at least from what I saw and gathered from the South, to my surprise, it was Long John Silver's. And oh that was God. definitely not what I expected. <laughs> You're right. Holy crap. Yeah, that was like one of the first things when we got into the city. We're like, oh, that that, that thing. That's a thing. I completely forgot. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Long John Silver's. Just the most random fast food chain ever. Yeah, never saw one in the Northeast, but I saw maybe 10 on that trip alone. All, all in the same day. Yeah, it was comical. It was almost like a novelty item. We, I kind of felt like we should have gone just once just to just to say we went. <laughs> but uh, I, I feel like it's probably terrible. Try Peter did add, I'm on board with sushi. My only worry is that it's not in the spirit of sacrifice enough. Still do it, though. Similarly, when I lived in Seattle, there was a seafood place called Ivers that always had a happy hour during Lent. $5 fish and chips and $3 craft beers. Best thing ever. One, shout out to Mike J, who lives in Seattle. And two, as I told him on Twitter, Ivers sounds like they knew what was good. And shout out to Ivers for liking that tweet. Next question is from Jerry Quinn. And he wants to know, if we can explain how the quadrants work, and how is this used for seating in this year's March Madness? Well, to... Explain this as easy as I can because it took me a hot second to exactly grasp it. And I, the numbers itself, there was actually a guide on comprehending it. I forgot what site had it, but it was like a PDF file. And there was a giant appendix that went along with it with a lot of footnotes. And I'm going to try to spare everyone that misery. Basically, in the past, we've seen games and wins when it comes down to breaking down a team's resume. It was like win versus a top 50 opponent, win versus a top 100 opponent, win versus a top 150 opponent, and wins versus a top 201 opponent or 200 opponent. Well, the NCAA did away with all that, and they wanted to be able to reward neutral game sites or wins on the road. And so they came up with this quadrant system that works almost the same way. You have teams ranked from 1 to whatever, 351. And instead of just having these hard deadlines where it's like 1 to 50, it's actually weighed in that wins against opponents on the road are actually weighed more. And if you beat a quality team or a quadrant one team, it's actually weighed heavier than, let's just say, playing that quadrant. What could be a quadrant one win could actually be like a quadrant two home win. It's meant to reward road wins, neutral wins, and home teams are still nice. You know, it's obviously you want to win everything, 
but it just means a little bit more when you went on the road. And it's something that I thought oh, the committee always did, but I guess it's a lot better to see them not only put that on paper, make it official, but also incorporate that in this formula that they've come up with and ranking the team. Yeah, you really have a good point with the committee kind of going by this now. I, I always thought they kind of had something similar to this, like secretive, but now that yeah, now that it's out in the open, it, it's kind of more transparent. It's just another nice way to really distinguish resumes and really reward teams for pulling out those wins on the road because obviously it is harder to win on the road when you don't have the home court advantage or just going into a tough place to play and gutting one out. And it's good to see that it's officially rewarded as opposed to just being grouped under like, a, oh, well, you beat a top 50 team. It's good to see that there's a little more weight, officially at least, added in taking down that team on the road as opposed to just looking at everything the same. This last question is the, uh, the question I wanted to ask you about a week ago. As reported by Matt Norlander, for the first time ever, players in college will officially get paid to play, and it's happening during the Final Four in San Antonio, and it's only applicable to every senior that's not playing in the Final Four. So what they're making, basically, is this 32-team, three-on-three tournament that's going to represent every league in college basketball. And this is all going to happen, apparently, during Final Four weekend in San Antonio. My question is from the SB Nation site for St. John's, Rumble, and the Garden. They asked on Twitter, with four-man rosters from each league for the three-on-three tournament, which four Big East seniors would you pick to represent the league? Ooh. Well, I like this. I like this question. Now, I'm assuming we can, can – can we assume that no Big East teams make the Final Four, so we can just pick the four? It doesn't matter. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm gunning for Villanova. But well, they no, no, I, I meant to they just... don't have seniors on the team. Yeah, so yeah. It's okay. Well, that that's my point. Obviously, that's what I was going for there. Uh, obviously, I would love to see an all Big East Final Four. But let's just say none of the Big East teams make Final Four. Who would my four be? Well, my first pick would be Angel Delgado. Second would be probably Trayvon Blewett. Third. Keelan Martin or Kamar Baldwin, are they are they seniors? Uh, Keelan Martin is a senior and Kamar Baldwin is a sophomore. I'd throw Keelan Martin in there. I'd throw Keelan Martin in there. And oof. Who would my last one be? Either Carrington or Cartwright? I, I'd say maybe Cartwright. I'd say Kyron Cartwright. That's my that's my four. Wow, that's actually the same team that I that I said on Twitter. Oh come on. <laughs> I said, I said, Kyron Cartwright. Uh, no, actually, no, 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 that's not the same. That's not the same. I said, oh, uh, all right, no, go no, ahead. you're good, you're good. Actually, I said, Kyron Cartwright, and then Marcus Foster, and then oh, with, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure I said Keelan Martin as coming in as the fourth man. All right. So we differ on Foster. I kind of forgot about. Foster. Oh, nope, nope, nope. I'm looking at my tweet now. I said Trayvon Blewett coming in as a fourth man. Oh, so, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't even have Blewett in the starting lineup, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's coming in as fourth man. Hmm. Interesting. So you have – so who's your team? Delgado, Cartwright, Foster, Blewett? and uh, Blewett, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Villanova is completely ineligible for not having any seniors – it's interesting, though. You know, I'm just, like, thinking, and obviously you have the one and done and everything. But I feel like a final – a four-man team of seniors from the Big East, I could see them going pretty far in this 32-team tournament. Oh, yeah, because since this is pretty much the only conference with high-end talent that actually preaches, you know, four-year student-athlete stuff and not the whole mercenary one-on-one like the ACC, I, I feel like the Big Ten – I don't think they're that big on the one and dones outside of like Michigan State, but I still feel that they would they wouldn't even put that great of a team together. I, I don't know. I would probably have to go through each conference and actually sit down and look before I make any judgments. But I I could definitely see the Big East doing doing really well in that in, in that tournament. I would actually watch that. I would I would watch some games. The Atlantic Ten sheds a tear, but I would totally watch that tournament. At least they. 
I would assume that they would do it when there's no Final Four games going on. I don't know exactly how they would structure it. I mean, that's a lot of games. <laughs> Maybe play all of them during that one off day when there's nothing going on. But I would totally watch that tournament. I don't know how, how they set it up, but I would totally watch it, especially the later rounds. That would be pretty cool to watch. You know how much they're making? Or is it just like a like a little stipend or so? <laughs> I would hope it's not just a stipend, but I could totally be, see it being just a stipend. That's a good question. I hope that they release those deals. Like, are they playing for like a million dollars? Because if so, I'm all right. for it. Like, like, I can totally see it in the championship game. They bring out the cash. They just have like a mountain of cash just before the game sitting on a table. And then they have the trophy there. Like, I'd be all for that. I don't know exactly how they're going to figure out the pay structure. And yeah, it's only seniors, but the, it, I think it's a pretty cool idea. One that's pretty fun. I would totally watch it. Yeah, I don't know how they're going to do that either. I, I feel like it might be like a the basketball tournament type thing where it's just winner take all and it's, it's some fixed sum of cash. But it would be cool if they did the game by game. It gives you more incentive to win, obviously. More, more quick incentive. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening to the State of the Nova Nation podcast. If you haven't already, please hit us up with a subscription on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podomatic, or Google Play. And as always, please check back at viewhoops.com regularly, often, frequently, just definitely not rarely. It's a great site. We got all your Villanova hoops, men's and women's needs. So check back and check often. And please follow the website on social media at viewhoops, which is good for Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow me, Eugene Repay, at Repay 5 And you can follow me, Chris Danziel, at The Stance Man on Twitter. Nova Nation, happy Lent. Sorry that it didn't work out yesterday, but call me crazy. I am still holding true and firm that we're going to smack some musketeers on Saturday.